This is the Alpha Human Podcast, and I am your host, Lawrence Rosenberg. With us today is Andrew Bustamante, a former covert CIA intelligence officer, U.S. Air Force combat veteran, Fortune 10 corporate advisor, and self-professed improvement junkie. As an intelligence officer with the CIA, Andrew planned, organized, and executed offensive and defensive cyber operations against a wide range of targets and has been involved in independent operations and joint initiatives with the FBI, the NSA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and their foreign service counterparts. He is also the founder of Everyday Spy, an education and training platform that teaches the espionage tactics of the world's elite intelligence agencies and how these techniques can benefit anyone that is seeking to gain a competitive advantage. Andrew is also the author of the book, Everyday Espionage, Winning in the Workplace, and he is the host of the Everyday Espionage podcast. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lawrence. Man, you have such an exciting introduction. It's hard not to get jazzed up. So I'm super excited to be here. And, uh, and man, let's jump into whatever you want to jump into, because this idea of an alpha human is so near and dear to my heart, brother. Fantastic. That's great to hear. I'm excited as well. I, I got to tell you, I love the podcast. I've been learning a lot from the content that you're putting out. I, I'm absolutely fascinated by the concept of espionage and how it might be useful in realms outside of the world of spies. I mean, who would have ever thought? And until I stumbled upon your information and started diving into it, I would have, I would have never made the connection. And believe me, I've looked to make connections between other worlds. Uh, I have been in the world of sales as a sales leader for years, running sales teams. So I've looked at psychology. I've looked at uh, FBI hostage negotiation. I mean, I've really scoured the landscape for excellence in other realms, the military, special forces, this kind of thing. But I never, ever thought how the techniques and strategies and tactics of spies would be useful uh, to myself, anyone in business or anyone in, in, in civilian life. So I want to dig into it with you. Um, let's start with the most basic for our listeners that might not know, what is espionage? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't want you to feel at all alone or, or frustrated that you never made that connection before because after spending a career between the military and a second career in intelligence, when I left CIA, I found myself in this really uncomfortable place where I was like, I have no marketable skills. And I, I actually, I struggled with that for months before I realized that I had all the skills that I needed hmm. to achieve anything I wanted to achieve. I just had to change the way that I looked at my own training. And that's where Everyday Spy came from, right? The platform that I run, the training that I deliver now is, is to bridge that gap that for other people that I never got to bridge myself until I lived through it. But yeah, so... Uh, as a quick backgrounder on espionage, what I'm talking about specifically is human intelligence. And there are many different times of, types of intelligence disciplines out there. Mm -hmm. Signals intelligence, measurements intelligence, uh, imagery intelligence. I'm talking about human intelligence, which means the intelligence operations that require a human information source. 
that human information source is a foreigner who belongs to a foreign country, a foreign government, a foreign uh, business organization, who is knowingly or unknowingly selling the secrets that they were entrusted to protect to a CIA officer. That is human intelligence. You can sugarcoat it, you can make movies about it, you can call it pretty things all you want to, but it is actually the, the profession of convincing people to become traitors against their country or their corporation and share and give their loyalty, give their information to someone else. Gotcha. I mean, you know, that, that term espionage, a lot of people, even, even myself until I had to look it up, I always thought I knew what it meant. Um, and, you know, you hear espionage and you think someone's sabotaging, uh, you know, uh, a nuclear submarine uh, of, you know, of an enemy, uh, uh, you know, of, a, of an enemy of the United States, right? So espionage, but um, to, to hear you explain it, not just as spying, but as human or human intelligence and gathering that intel um, is absolutely fascinating to, uh, you know, to the, uh, the civilian uh, population. So, and it's interesting. You mentioned sabotage. You're uh, you're still correct. Sabotage is one element of espionage. Cyber operations is another element of espionage. Corporate espionage, industrial espionage. There's all these different elements. Absolutely. But when it comes to where I love to dig in, where where I have seen the most tangible, independent value is in that realm of human intelligence, human operations. That's where, that's where it becomes intimate to each of us as individuals. It takes more than one person to sabotage a submarine. It takes more than one person to create you know, a series of algorithms that basically can go in and extract information from a foreign data server. But when it comes to what the amount that one person can do, that's all human intelligence and it's an unlimited amount of potential that each, each individual human spy carries. Unbelievable. Um, you know, and again, even, even more so, um, uh, I'm excited to dig in further. I mean, if you look at uh, my logo, right, victory through insight, um, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for insight and, uh, and human intelligence, from what I understand, is also a lost art. We're mm-hmm. so buried now in algorithms and, you know, looking for algorithms to tease out the patterns and the, you know, the data points and the so-called intelligence that, just the, the lost art of cultivating it and curing it, curating it the old fashioned way, uh, person to person seems to be lost unless I'm just living in a fantasy that I've uh, been reading about in books and movies. No, I don't think you're living in a fantasy at all. It's funny because uh, I would say that the, the lost art that you're talking about is actually the lost art of human relationships because that's really what is at the center of human intelligence operations is just human relationships. But that doesn't sound cool and that doesn't sound sexy, right? So you don't hear about that when you see James Bond or Jason Bourne. But right. at, the, at the center of every intelligence operation is a human relationship. Because like I said earlier, ultimately the objective is to find someone who is loyal to their country or loyal to their corporation and through a relationship, convince them to shift loyalty to you as an individual. That's a huge dynamic. That's a huge paradigm to shift. The only way you're going to do that is through a deep, meaningful relationship. Now, the dirty truth here is that that deep, meaningful relationship is completely and totally engineered by the professional spy. 
Right. And the person who is the asset does not know that that is happening to them. So it is a one-sided relationship. It's not the kind of thing we want to promote in the romantic world, but it is absolute proof of the power of human relationship. Incredible. Um, okay. Let's, let's start a little bit with your background and your story. So we'd love to hear how you ended up deciding to join the military, understand you were in the Air Force, uh, and then beyond that, of course, ultimately with the CIA. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you the dime store version because it, it can be a long story. But uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I was a, a brown kid in a white community. So it was you know, not that surprising uh, when the time came that I wanted to leave Pennsylvania. And I started looking at where I was going to go. And the first place that really caught my attention were the military academies, the U.S. military academies, because uh, it was a full ride scholarship. It was a full ride scholarship. And then I had many of the things they were looking for. I had good grades. I was active in my community, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the story of how I got into the military is a very simple story. I wanted to go to college. I wanted someone else to pay for it. And I wanted the highest possible level of education I could get. So the Air Force Academy was the right fit for me. Uh, I ended up getting everything I needed to go there. I made it through the four-year program. While I was at the Air Force Academy, they mandate that all students go through a strategic language. The strategic language they gave me was Chinese. Uh, during my time with the Air Force Academy, learning Chinese, they actually ended up sending me to China. So my first significant overseas travel happened when I was 21 years old, paid for by the U.S. government, learning Chinese in China. And it was such a life-changing experience for me in many different ways. But when I came back from that, I knew that all I wanted in my life and my career was to get back overseas again. I wanted to live and work abroad because when you challenge yourself in that kind of environment, a different language, a different culture, a different uh, identity, national identity, and you've got to work and thrive in that environment, it's like the ultimate challenge. Hmm. So going back, uh, being part of the military, everybody does their service. I was fortunate enough to be given a very high secret clearance. I was fortunate enough to get to work in both aviation and space operations and nuclear missile operations. Wow. Uh, but when Iraq and Afghanistan really started to spin up, we all did our deployments. That's how I got my combat status. Uh, but ultimately, the Air Force was looking for people to leave so that money could be diverted to the Army and the Marine Corps. And I was one of the first people willing to raise my hand. And I raised my hand and started getting ready to leave so I could go join the Peace Corps because the Peace Corps is, the, is an easy way to live overseas in challenging conditions. <laughs> All right. but that, that application process kind of got derailed. Uh, CIA found out about me in that application process, reached out to me and said, would you be willing to come to Langley, Virginia? And that's not an invitation that you turn down. I don't know anybody on this call or anybody listening to the podcast right now would know if you got that phone call, it's hard to say no to that invitation. So they flew me up to Langley. I went through my first battery of, uh, of interviews and uh, psych psychological exams. Mm -hmm. And that, that was kind of how it all worked. Before I knew it, I was going back, crossing the seal at CIA, getting ready for my first day of on-the-job training, and then later on for the farm. So The farm. So uh, that is what they call it, huh? The farm. Yeah, that's our, that's our human intelligence training camp, our human intelligence training course. 
Uh, we lovingly call it the farm, but it's more officially known as the field tradecraft course, FTC. Okay. All right. So now you're, now, and it must be a thrill. I mean, you must be like jacked and, and so excited to be a part of this thing. Um, but at the same time, if I read correctly, you can't tell anyone that you're working yeah. with the CIA. <laughs> I mean, I, if, if I was working with the CIA, I want to tell everybody. I'm like, <laughs> working with the CIA. I'm in the CIA. Um, but you can't yeah. tell anyone? Is that, is that the, the deal? Yeah, so uh, early on in your interview process, they, they do a quick kind of check-in with you to say, you know, how many people have you told you were traveling to Virginia? What did you tell them? And they're looking for, for people to explain how much they have shared already. Because of course, discretion is a skill, is a value that they're looking for, especially in an undercover or co a covert officer. So you would be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't be, when, when most of us get that, uh, that invitation to go up to Langley, we don't really want to tell everybody about it because we don't want the world knowing what we're about to do. And then you have this nagging security consciousness in the back of your head where you're like, what danger am I putting myself into by telling people I'm going to CIA? Um, and what does that mean for my sisters and my brothers and my wife and my children? So we kind of go uh, with a little bit of trepidation to get there the first time. And then when you're there, that's when they kind of tell you straight up, look, we're looking at you for an undercover role. We need you to be uh, discreet. Anybody that you share your, your uh, affiliation with uh, will be, will deny it, will reject it, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you get a very clear briefing early on, not right out of the gates, but early on. And a big piece of that interview process is them testing you to see what your natural limitations for operational security are. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. And then, um, upon leaving, uh, as well, I understand initially that you couldn't even, uh, you couldn't say you ever worked for them. Yeah. It's a very difficult pro It's like leaving the mafia, I imagine. Um, but you leave and you can't, you're still undercover. They, they go through CIA goes through a process of reviewing your entire operational history and then coming back and telling you what you can and cannot disclose. There are some people who leave CIA and get a formal letter from CIA that says you can never disclose any affiliation with us ever. I was fortunate enough that they came back and they gave me a stipulation of what I could and couldn't share. And part of what I could share was my affiliation and a, a period of time that I was affiliated with them. Uh, and that was more or less, that was more or less it for me, but that's enough. That's enough to be able to uh, share the skills that I have with the world and have at, and at least know that if someone pushes on CIA to give them a proof of employment or some sort of proof of affiliation that I know that they can or they will. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah, it's interesting because you think about some of the CIA agents who have gone on to write books uh, where they talk about a lot. I'm assuming that they probably have the same uh, letter as you that they couldn't talk, you know, that most of it they couldn't talk about. But then I guess you must be able to propose to the CIA that you would like to write a book and here's what you'd like to write it about. And they, and I guess they have the ability to say yes or no. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, not to get too boring into the administrative of it all, but when you become a CIA officer, one of the rights that you give up for the rest of your life is the right to freedom of speech when it comes to your own operational background. So we, we forfeit the right to ever write, to ever publish anything that has to do with our intelligence background specific to us. 
specific to sources, human sources, or intelligence collection methods. So we call it sources and methods in our world. Uh, but yeah, any, anything we ever choose to produce, we can propose and submit to a, to a board, a review board at CIA. Uh, CIA can choose to review that, approve it, reject it, or uh, blackline, so redact certain portions of it, and get back to us. So yes, many of the, of the CIA memoirs that you see, many of those memoirs went through the correct process. Some of them did not. When they do not go through the correct process, you usually hear about it in the press, like you're hearing right now with John Bolton, I believe, where uh, his memoir was not approved, but he chose to publish it anyways. And that's always a big mess. And CIA, you don't, CIA wins whenever you go crosswise of CIA. So I already know how that story is going to end. <laughs> gotcha. Um, okay. So how, okay, so now you're, now you're on the farm or you're in the farm. Um, how long is your training? Uh, and, but, well, how long is the training before you're actually deployed? The, the specific training period for the, uh, for the farm, for the field trade craft course is classified. So I can't share how long that training was. Uh, it was many weeks. It was uh, many months of time. And it's all deep, uh, what's known as immersive training. So uh, immersive training is something I hope we'll touch on it at some point, but it's a, it's, a, it's a training style that I have lived through. I've witnessed it with the military and then especially with CIA. And immersive training is such a powerful tool for fast, permanent learning. It's actually a tool that I still use with everydayspy.com because if you can simulate an environment for someone, drop them in the middle of that completely controlled environment, then you are able to maximize the training potential in any given moment. So it's not that different from, let's say, if you went to a sales training event, you'll know that sales training events are often structured around the normal workday. You go at 8 a.m., everybody gets out at 5 p.m., there's a social event afterwards, right? That's not how the real world works. There's no salesman out there who only has to sell between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. They've got to sell all the time. They've got to sell who they are and sell their credibility and sell their, their expertise. And most of the time, the hardest work is done before 8 a.m. or after 5 p.m. The easy part of the job is the normal workday. Yep. So what I love about immersive training and what CIA does 1,000% right is it drops its trainees into a controlled environment and it pushes us to our limits in non-traditional ways so that we can find our limits, explore them, fail if we need to fail, but then grow. And that's the same type of environment that I simulate with some of my everyday spy training. Okay. All right. Wow. So, so I guess another term would be experiential, right? It's like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a great term. Yes, sir. So, okay. So then you're deployed. And let's, so what does a covert intelligence officer do? <laughs> I mean, right? I, That's a great question. What is that? And is that, the, and is that just a synonym for spy? Yeah. Covert, yeah, a covert intelligence officer is the more academic term for a spy. Okay. And then to the easiest way to imagine what we do, we all have our job. We are a spy, that's our job. But then we also all have a cover that we're living and working under. To everybody else who knows us and sees us, that is our job. 
So the easiest way I can explain what a spy does is basically by saying we have two jobs all the time. We have the job that we're really trying to accomplish and the job that we have to accomplish in order to maintain a feasible cover that allows us to do the first job. So because of that, we are constantly under loads of stress, work stress. Uh, our time is very closely controlled by us because we are aware of what objectives we have and what time frame we have to accomplish those objectives. Plus, we have to do all of it within the confines of a seemingly normal life, a seemingly uh, kind of nominal, boring life in whatever covered entity we are. So in that secret life, we are meeting people and trying to build those human relationships I was telling you about mm -hmm. that take time so that we can move someone from a place where they're a patriot to the place where they're willing to become a traitor and become loyal to us. That period of time can take anywhere from, I mean, depending on who you're talking to, it can take weeks in some instances. If you're talking to a terrorist, for example, or if you're talking to someone in a criminal element, their loyalty can change very quickly. Right. But if you're speaking to someone who's a senior ranking military officer or someone who's an actual government official, that can take years to move that person off of the X from where they are to where you want them to be. So those human relationships have to be done in a secure way through what seems like this innocuous cover. And it's, a, it's an interesting kind of ballet dance where you are mastering your actual human intelligence skill but you are also carrying out all the mundane tasks that are required for whatever cover element you're in. And can, and can those innocuous roles be anything from a travel, you know, a, a salesperson for, you know, for a corporation, it could be a business owner, it could be a government official for, could, right? I mean, absolutely. Right? If you can think of it, if you can think of it, it can be a cover legend. Absolutely. Now there, in the United States specifically, uh, there are a number of policy regulations where we will not use certain covers. We will not use a clergyman as cover. We will not deploy somebody as a priest or as a, as a guru or as any kind of religious figure. We will not use doctors. We will not use teachers. We will not use foreign volunteers. And the reason that the United States follows those rules is because we want to make sure that any American citizen actually in those rule in those roles will always be able to travel safely. Once one CIA officer is caught pretending to be a Catholic priest, every priest, every American priest on the planet is at risk. We cannot let that happen in our country. So we very strictly adhere to not using those types of covers. Now the Chinese, the Russians, the Israelis, the Cubans, you know, they all have their own rules. And they play a very different game than we do sometimes. But uh, for us, if you can imagine the cover identity, the more mundane and boring you can make it, the more feasible and, and effective it is as a cover. What I'm starting to learn from you uh, is that boring is uh, actually- Powerful. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get into that, of course. Um, okay, so when you're, you know, when you're in the field, uh, and you're deployed in another country. Um, are are you given a target? Are you given targets, or do you, or is it on you to find, you know, to uncover pos prospects that would be yeah. good to turn? It's a list. Of, it's a mix of both. So uh, 
my, in my specific position, you've, you know me well enough, Lawrence, that you know that I am married to another former CIA officer. My wife is what was known as a CIA covert targeter. And the targeting aspect of what she did was actually to find human targets of potential foreign intelligence value. So again, that's a lot of academic jargon to basically say she found people who had access to information that the Americans wanted. So when you put the two of us together, right. her as a, as a trained target and me as a trained intelligence uh, field officer, when you put the two of us together, CIA basically had a package that they could deploy anywhere to do both prospecting, to use your sales term, and tailored targeting. So we were kind of an, an interesting, unique pair because we were able to do that. When the CIA gives you a target, someone like my wife, someone like Jihee, creates that entire dossier. Who the person is, how old they are, how many children, where they went to school, what they like to do, what their vices are, what their weaknesses are, potential vulnerabilities, possible motivations. I mean, it can be scary when you think about how much information can be discovered about a person, but it's extremely valuable when you're trying to execute a field operation to convert somebody. When you don't have a, a targeter like my wife to deliver a package like that to you, then you end up just shaking hands. You're riding the subway, you're going to events, you're you know, visiting museums, you're doing anything you can do in the social world so that you can cross paths with someone and essentially assess them personally long enough to create your own personal targeting uh, dossier for them. Gotcha, gotcha, wow. You know, I, and you're right, I do know from reading about you that your wife uh, was also in the CIA, didn't know what she did. Fascinating what you've just mentioned. Uh, clearly you guys met, you know, out in the field. Um, I, you know, you start to think of like films uh, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, right? True lies. <laughs> um, but uh, I, is, she is she still in the CIA or she's out as well? We both left at the same time, yeah. So we met, we met in our initial training, uh, and that was the most unexpected of things for me, and I think for her too. Neither of us thought that we would be going to CIA to start dating somebody, uh, but uh, it just worked. It worked, and then all the pieces kind of fell together because her language was complementary to my language, her ethnicity was complementary to my ethnicity, and the, like, the, the pins, the chips all just fell into place in a beautiful way. And then when, we, when the time came to leave, a big piece of why we left was because we had our first child. And there's a point in your career where you realize you absolutely have to make a choice. Do you live for the company or do you live for your family? And that's a hard choice and nobody, nobody makes that choice without taking plenty of time to think about it. When my wife and I thought about it, we chose family. That was, that was why we, found each other. That was what we prioritized more than anything else. And we did not want to forfeit our one chance to be engaged, loving parents by always being absentee on some foreign mission that we couldn't talk about. Yeah. Powerful. Um, okay. So the job at hand is to turn the target, right? Um, is that the right t term to, to that's, a great, that's a great target. Yep. That's a great term. So, how, how do you, because clearly it happens all the time, but if you're dealing with a patriot, someone who's sworn, who really has sworn allegiance and they're, you know, they believe in the cause uh, for their country, 
you know, how do you, how do you turn someone like that? So what's, you know, now we can get, we start getting into a lot of the, the stuff you, you teach and, and talk about, but um, yeah, let me turn it over to you. How do you do that? So there's a, there's a cycle. I'll start, I'll start with a cycle that we are all taught. And the, the, the cycle is known as SADRAT. It's an, it's an acronym. And it's basically spot, assess, develop, recruit, and then you handle and terminate. S-A-D-R-A-T. And I'll just briefly walk you through that full cycle. Um, spotting is the, is the step where you actually find that person of interest. And that's just like you were saying. Sometimes that's a dossier that's handed to you. Sometimes that's you going out on the social sector and you just shake hands and pat backs until you find someone who happens to be a general in the military. But once you spot that person, you begin a, a relationship. That relationship, what you and I would call a friendship, what some lovers might call dating, that relationship is known as assessment. It's the second step, uh, the A, assessment. During that assessment period, you're constantly engaging that person as a peer, but you're also doing a calculation on your side. Is this person discreet? Does this person have access to sensitive information? Is this person willing to share that, those secrets with me as a friend or as a peer? If they're not willing to share secrets, but they do have access to secrets, you, don't, you can't work with them. There's nothing you can do to move that person off the X if they are protecting their secrets. It's just like trying to make a sale when someone won't buy. You're, you're not gonna waste a bunch of time trying. So you've got to move on to the next target. But that's the importance of that, that A, that assessment step. Then you move into the D, the development step. In development, you have confirmed that the person has access, you've confirmed that they're discreet, that they're willing to share, but now you need to start coaching them to get them to a place where they can be a secure, long-term secret asset. They have to learn how to follow your orders, they have to learn how to take your direction, they have to be willing to accept money or something for trade that gives you leverage over them, some sort of control. All of that happens in the D, the developmental stage. Then you start the recruitment cycle. The recruitment is the pitch. It's a very short but important cycle. It's just like when you make a sales pitch, you basically tell them, hey, you want this. I can give that to you. You can trust me. I trust you. Now let's work together and be this power, this power team that defeats bad guys and saves good guys and we'll do it together. And if they say yes to the pitch, now you have a secure recruited asset. It's just like closing a sale. Once they are an asset, then you move into a completely different type of relationship. You go from being in an overt relationship to being in a covert relationship. So now all of your meetings are in secret. All of your communication is in secret. This is where you start to introduce all the fancy technology that keeps them safe from people who might be listening in. All of that happens in the handling phase or the second A. Uh, we do know how to spell, but it makes for a hard acronym when you have to use H. Right. And then the final step with everything is every, every source, every asset runs its course. Sometimes they're, they're very useful for six months. And then, you know, if they're a terrorist, especially if they're reporting to us and then they get caught by someone in their terrorist cell, they'll get shot and killed and they will disappear. Sometimes they'll report for years, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, especially if they're a well-placed senior ranking government official. They're in complete control of their space. They can, they're extremely secure. Those people can be in place for a long time. Um, and then you always get to this, this place where they run out of information or they, the risk is too great to continue to run them. 
So you have to what we call terminate. And of course, the terminate that we all think of as shooting someone you know, in a back room, that's not the terminate that we're talking about. We're talking about terminating the clandestine relationship. When you successfully terminate a clandestine relationship, then just like when you leave a prospect behind, if you keep them warm, you can always come back when they, get, when they come into more money or when they have a new sales opportunity. For us, somebody who doesn't have access today might get access five years from now. So you want to terminate on a good note and then have the opportunity to come back and potentially re-recruit them using that full cycle again in the future. So that's my long answer. The acronym SADRAT, S-A-D-R-A-T, spot, assess, develop, recruit, handle, and terminate. That's how we do it. Okay, we're gonna delve deeper into that, but I just, one thing I wanted to clear up for myself, um, what, is the, what is the difference uh, between the work that a CIA intelligence officer does versus uh, the DIA, right? Like, how, how, you know, what, how does that differ? It's a great question. So you've got to remember that the intelligence infrastructure in the United States, first of all, you're always hearing people talk about intelligence reform. There's a reason, because there is a lot of duplicated effort. And this question that you're posing right away, the difference between CIA and DIA is exactly that. Somewhere along the line, it was decided that the Defense Intelligence Agency would report human intelligence related to military, and that CIA would report all human intelligence not related to military. So they, they get their different funding sources. Every person they meet basically has to be justified against a budget line item. This is still the government. Right. And and if, if their target aligns with the budget line item, then they're allowed to continue their operation. There are many CIA officers who get frustrated because they're meeting an interesting military person and they are forced to basically give uh, priority or primacy over to DIA to come in and take their target. Sometimes DIA gets very frustrated because they've got a lead that's a great business person and they're forced to give primacy to CIA. And then there's the rare occasion where the two organizations cooperate and let the other run the operation. But I am a huge advocate for intelligence reform because it is an, there's an enormous amount of waste that happens when you don't let the human relationship piece do what it's supposed to do. Some people have just, they have better chemistry. They have a better, stronger connection than other people. And you can't dictate that with policy. Right, right, wow. Um, thanks for clarifying that. Um, so let's get into everyday spy, right? Your, your, your training program, your educational program. Um, what, what is everyday spy? Everyday spy is a training program that takes espionage tactics and techniques and teaches them to everyday people so that they can dominate in their life. Now, there are multiple what I call pillars to intelligence. Uh, in national security, there's what we call a national security triangle. And that triangle basically has three points. It has a point that has to do with power, a point that has to do with influence, and a point that has to do with security. Those three points make up the entire, they are the heart of all national security. I take those same three points and bring them into our everyday life. Power, influence and security and then each of those i can break down into a separate set of skills that caa taught me mm -hmm. that i have used in the everyday world to increase my own power my own influence and my own security 
And then I just transfer that knowledge to others, whether it's through a structured training program or through a free webinar, the podcast like you listen to, or even my regular newsletter. People can consume the training in any way that they choose to any level of depth that they choose. Uh, but the, the whole objective is that transfer of knowledge. I am a public servant. What CIA taught me was paid for by tax dollars. As long as it isn't classified, my mission is to share that back to the same public that paid for it. Incredible. Um, so you have a, it's a 10 week program, uh, right? A 10 week course called OpThink. Correct. Yeah. My, my, so my, my premier course right now is known as operational thinking and operational thinking is it's estimated to take 10 weeks. I modeled it off of essentially the first 14 days that we go through at the farm. And it is everything that it takes to, to recondition the way that you think. Now, this is the conversation that makes people uncomfortable because nobody wants to admit that the way they think might be flawed. Mm -hmm. It is a foundational uh, understanding at CIA that when you show up on day one, your thinking is flawed. You have to change the way that you think because the only way that you will ever survive in the field, succeed in the field, is if you can stop thinking in a reactionary way and start thinking in an operational way. Now, what's the difference between the two? Most of us are used to thinking reactively. We, something happens, we process that information, we make a decision. Many people take great pride in how they can react to a, to a situation. People, my wife calls it an emergency mode. There are people who say that they love being, you know, in clutch moments or they're decision makers or, you know, they're risk takers, whatever it might be. The, tr the fact is anytime you're thinking reactively, you have already lost control of the situation. You're trying to regain control or some semblance of control. Operational thinking is all about taking certain cognitive steps to constantly always be in control of the current situation and the situation that is coming because you can predict it. You can predict human behavior. You can predict the uh, decisions that will be made by people in uh, positions of authority. You can set things in motion that create, uh, create an environment that you want to have created. That is the power of operational thinking. That is what I teach in that OpThink course. Okay. So a lot of this, as I understand it, has to do with controlling the environment, right? Controlling the environment around you, not going from reactionary to being proactive to, you know, in order to predict and forecast what will take place and then, um, you know, manipulate it or influence it. Um, so uh, first and foremost, when we talk about influence, um, what is influence operations? Influence operations is something different than the term influence. So an influence operation is an operation that has a specific end goal where the intention is to uh, either influence a way of thinking or influence a series of mass events, like a mass movement sort of thing. So for example, uh, if you wanted to create a environment that would be unstable during an election, mm -hmm. you would run an influence operation and that influence operation may not have any specific objective. It may not want people to think any specific way, 
all it wants to do is cause chaos. So it will just feed different fires. Here's a group talking about, uh, you name it, uh, far left group, far right group, centrist group, women's group, men's group. It will just fund every group out there in some covert way to just cause a ton of chaos. Because the goal of that influence operation is simply to distract people from an orderly election. And that's something that we saw in 2016. That's something that we will see again this year uh, because that's just, it's, it's too easy. It's too fundamental. We do it in every country around the world. Every country that doesn't have a tie to the, every country that wants to influence the United States is going to participate in an influence operation during the election season. I think we're already seeing it. Absolutely. So but then that's, and that's different than the kind of uh, human intelligence influence that we're talking about, because human intelligence influence is when you're trying to influence the perceptions or the decisions of a single person, very specifically, very intentionally. So if you want someone to say something, think something, believe something, that is, you want to gain influence over that person, which is different than an influence operation. Gotcha. Thank you for that distinction. Because, um, uh, you know, I was reading, uh, you know, I saw that influence. I, you know, wasn't sure. Is it, you know, is that a propaganda operation or is that actually something you can distill down and you would do uh, internally within a company or, you know, within a, uh, you know, a personal setting if you're a civilian. So it's, it's just interesting. But um, so let's talk about how, how a spy would seek to control their environment in the same, you know, what, what are the, what are the lessons that you learned as a spy controlling their environment that would translate to a civilian and how that would help them in another environment, whether it's, um, again, whether it's business, whether it's in personal relationships, what, how would that work? There's, the, the objective in every human intelligence operation is to put yourself into the head, into the mind of your target. So let's look at you and I right now, Lawrence. Mm -hmm. If you were my target, mm -hmm. the most important thing for me is to gain trust, to build a relationship with you. And when we talk about relationship, whether we're talking about a dating relationship or a professional relationship, at the heart of every relationship is trust. Mm -hmm. There are very specific actions that are consistent throughout the human race to build trust with somebody. One of those is called mirroring. So when I look at you right now, and anybody who's listening to the podcast, you're, you're missing on an opportunity here to see myself and to see Lawrence. Mm -hmm. when, you look, when I look at you, Lawrence, what I see is I see you leaning off to one side of your chair. Mm -hmm. You're leaning back slightly. Mm -hmm. When you are planning a question, you have a tell. You cross your arms and you put your mat, your hand over your face. Anybody who's watching you on YouTube right now can rewind it and go back and see it. You, you have this position that you take. Mm -hmm. And it's because I can tell that you are thoughtfully thinking through what you want to ask, what you want to say next. To help expedite a relationship between you and I to build trust, mm -hmm. I would actually physically start to mirror you. I would lean back in my own chair. Mm -hmm. and, and when you're talking to me, I would start to hold the same kind of movement. Right now, what this does is subconsciously put you and I on the exact same playing field. You, whatever you're thinking before you meet me, 
when I start to act like you, when I start to mirror you, mm-hmm. I am telling you subconsciously that we are equals. The more that I mirror you, the more confident you are that we are equals, the more equal you feel with me, the more trust you place in me and in our relationship. If I were to, to constantly interrupt you, if I were to power over you, if I were to correct you, completely different type of relationship. We all know what that feels like. Now, you can do that in any language to any person of any educational level, and they will begin to feel connected. They will begin to feel like they can trust you. Now, imagine doing that over days, over weeks, over months, and then along with just that one technique, we're using several other techniques. We're using techniques like deliberate dialogue. Deliberate dialogue is a technique I teach where you actually take people through an intentional conversation that has an end goal that you're trying to achieve. When you think most conversation, again, just like most thinking, is reactionary. Somebody says something, you react to what they say, they say something different, you react to the different thing that they say. Deliberate dialogue means you know where you want this conversation to end. So no matter what the other person says, you bring them back on target. You bring them back on point. That's a form of deliberate dialogue. You mix deliberate dialogue with mirroring. All of a sudden, you see how these skills start to stack up. You put that in a place and you add in conversation mapping. You add in a deliberate question asking. You add in social capital and you're just layering skill upon skill. And before the person across from you even knows what's going on, they are absolutely entranced with you. They want to be like you, they want to be around you, they trust you. They don't ever think of it as like, oh, this guy is better than me. They think of it like, this guy is me. He gets me. This is where I want to be every moment of my free time. If there's one person that I can, I can vent to about the secrets in my life, it's this guy. And that's, that's where you want to be. So I've been, by the way, I've been fighting myself Right. <laughs> I, I caught my eyes like a couple of times. Um, powerful, powerful. So, okay. So you talk about um, gaining trust. And so how does something you talk about is the power of secrets. So clearly that then plays into, so how does gaining trust uh, intersect with the power of secrets? We all have three lives, and I teach this. Uh, I don't know that I've taught this through the blog yet. I think I may have only taught this uh, in a couple of personal conversations or personal public speaking events. So thank you for this opportunity. We all have three lives. We have a public life, we have a private life, and we have a secret life. Our public life is the life that we want people to see. Sometimes we want people to see the truth. There's not much I can do. I have black hair. You're going to see it. Mm -hmm. I have two little kids. Sometimes I have bags under my eyes because I'm tired. Nothing I can do about that. That's public. But then we also have a private life. Now, the private life is something that we keep to ourselves, protected from the public, but we still share it with people that are close to us. My wife knows the things that I value the most. Uh, My children know that I like to be silly and play games on the floor. I'm never going to have some stranger come into my house and watch me, you know, draw rainbows with my daughter. But my daughter knows that I do it. That's part of my private life. But then we also have a secret life. That secret life is the life that we protect 
from even the people closest to us. That's the life where, where we hide our addictions. That's the life where we hide the places, the things that we fear, uh, the areas where we feel either incomplete or we feel like we've missed out or we feel ashamed. That space, that secret life is an incredibly valuable tool to an intelligence officer because when you build a trusting relationship with someone and you want them to divulge their secrets, you can divulge a secret first. And if they are not trained mentally, conditioned like we are in OpThink, if they are not conditioned to recognize that a secret life secret is something that is disposable, then they will react by sharing a secret that they have professionally. So I can go to someone and say, look, I feel ashamed because I promised my wife that I would protect her and take care of her. And I have not been able to save like I want to save for retirement. And I'm afraid that my wife is going to have to keep working. If I say that to someone who trusts me, they're, they're going to be faced with a situation where do they share a secret that they're also ashamed of? Or do they just share a secret at work? And they're like, oh, well, you know what? My boss is a real jerk. And we were supposed to approve this $50,000 exercise, but we're secretly not really going to approve it. And then you're like, oh, wow, you know, we're, we're sharing secrets together because we are brothers, because we are friends, because we're that close. And once somebody steps into that secret realm one time, we call that a slippery slope. Because now you can come back over and over again, and you can touch on that one secret area, and they can't deny it. So then they're forced to scramble and give more secrets to try to stop you from asking about that one secret. It's, it's a powerful tool that works in the intelligence world, and it's a powerful tool that works in everyday life when it comes to building those impenetrable relationships. So I could already see how, you know, if you're talking about the triangle and you're talking about power, you know, this is obviously how one accumulates power by getting people to trust them, by divulging their secrets, by, by building that intimacy in those relationships. And you only hope that, you know, the person is doing it for good purposes as opposed to nefarious purposes. Right. Um, but uh, obviously there's a little bit of self-interest mixed into everything you do. Uh, and, you know, I, clearly this is powerful stuff for, um, for operating within an organ, a, a corporation, an organization. Uh, and, and there's more than that. Like, and I, I told, I will be the first one to say that the stuff that I'm teaching, the stuff that I'm talking about can be really it's sexy when you first start talking about it. And as you start scratching off the surface, it becomes heavy. It becomes seemingly overwhelming. So let me just give you a few real quick examples of how you can use this in everyday life. Okay. So that you don't feel that gravitas. Cause I'm, we're talking about espionage. Espionage is illegal, man. It's illegal everywhere. People go to jail for their entire life for committing espionage. Yeah. That's not what I'm teaching people to do. What I'm teaching people to do is take that, that skill set, that knowledge, that insight, and apply it in everyday life. So let's say that you're, you're in a job and you're trying to get a promotion. You are one of 10 other people all working underneath the same boss. Mm -hmm. You know what? There's 10 people. Nine of them could care less about the boss. The nine people that you're working with probably all see the boss as an idiot, an enemy, 
a roadblock, you know, whatever. One or two of them might be trying to suck up to the boss, but secretly they all think he's an idiot. Mm -hmm. If you can be the one person to change that paradigm and actually put yourself in your boss's shoes, because you know what every boss has? Every boss has life problems. Every boss has to deal with a spouse at home. Every boss has to deal with late work hours. Are they going to get paid? Are they going to get promoted? Are they going to get fired? They've all got cars that break down. They're all trying to lose weight, right? If you can actually sympathize with your boss and then approach them as an equal by acknowledging that you have the same problems that they have, you don't have to talk to your boss about work every day. Sometimes you can just talk to him about what he's having for lunch or what you're having for lunch. You can talk to your boss about whether or not she stays too late at work and why you stay too late at work. You build this relationship and then you become the top of mind person on the team whenever your boss needs something to that, whenever they need someone they can trust. Not because of anything nefarious at all, but right. just because of the law of human relationships. You come to mind first because they see themselves in you. They want to give you an opportunity. They want to give you a chance and you deserve it because you have learned what your boss needs. You are the best suited to become a boss now because you understand the boss. The other nine people are still just cogs, right? Take it in your home life. Many people send their children to school and at, well, they used to at least before coronavirus, right? <laughs> and you're, you are giving someone or a series of people more access to your child than you have access to your own child. Yep. Right? Five days of the week, they're living underneath a principal. Two days of the week, they're living with you. You can, take, you can take every one of these skills and you can apply them to actually interview and build relationships with those principals, those teachers. It doesn't have to be the, the requirement that you go to the, uh, the school uh, functions. You can actually call up a principal and make an appointment anytime you want. You can choose to sit with a public school teacher anytime you choose. You can set weekly or bi-weekly or once monthly meetings where all you do is talk about your child with that teacher. And if you can mirror that teacher, if you can put yourself in the mind of that teacher, what's it like to be someone who every day deals with six rotations of 30 students and has to remember their performance and what they're doing and has to deal with some students who want to act out, some students who are hungry, some students who are just frankly too smart and too talented to be in their class at that level. Like this is all the stuff a teacher has to deal with. If you can reflect some of that on the teacher, they will see you and your child as someone who deserves more energy, more effort, more attention. And if you can teach these skills to your children, think about the potential that they have. I learned these skills at 27, 28 years old. I am teaching them to my seven-year-old and my three-year-old. They are going to be leap years ahead. Just they're light years ahead of anybody they ever deal with when it comes to cognitive maturity, personal relationship development, and uh, individual acuity. They just understand people at a superior level, they will become alpha humans. And that's what I want them to be. Yeah. So it's, it, it, it really is about in so many ways, not living on auto, not putting your mind on autopilot, not being reactionary and at the mercy of events, but doing the hard thinking in order to lay the environment out to, you know, to your advantage 
you know, in a way where, I mean, who doesn't want to build relationships? Exactly. Right. So, um, but of course, if you, you know, if you're in the CIA and you're trying to turn someone from another country takes on a whole new context. Um, and there but, are many times, you know, you say who wants to build relationships. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Lawrence. Yeah. Who wants to build relationships? It's easy for us to say we all want to build them, but that's not really true. We want to build relationships with the people we want to have relationships with. That's the big divider, right? So the difference between what I learned at CIA was I had to build relationships with people I never wanted to deal with. Criminals and warlords and drug lords and terrorists and pedophiles. These are not people I would ever in a million years want to spend my time with. But they have something valuable to national security and therefore it warrants my time and my attention and my effort. The skills that I could use to deal with the scum of the universe, that's when I, I realized later, these are the skills that I can use to deal with everyday good people who can help me achieve my own goals. My boss can help me achieve my goals. My clients can help me achieve my goals. My kids' teachers can help me achieve my goals. If I give them just a modicum, just, a, just a, the tiniest bit of what I learned from CIA, all of a sudden their value to me exponentially increases. Mm. That's, the, that's what I see with Everyday Spy. It's not about creating traitors out of patriots. It's about creating advocates out of strangers, people who want to help you, but who until you talk to them, they don't even know you exist. Just like so many of us are surrounded by strangers that we have no interest in building a relationship because we don't see any value in them. The whole paradigm changes. And you cut your teeth on the hardest people to crack in the world, right? These are, the, these are people with secrets that they for sure don't want to give up. And that, that's, you know, that, that's where you're perfecting your craft. You bring it into the civilian world and it's like, you know, a hot knife through butter. <laughs> but at least you're doing it for, you know, it, you know it, it's for positive purposes, right? Um, hey, much like in the CIA, as far as being an American patriot, what you're doing there is for positive purposes for us, not so much for those guys, obviously. Right, exactly. Right, but um, okay, I'd, I'd love to get into, I heard you talk about the, so this is something, again, you know, I'm a big believer in intelligence and insight and the difference between information and intelligence. And you talk a lot about that. And there's another triangle you bring up. So I'd, I'd like you to explain for the listeners, you know, what is, what is it about information versus intelligence and how does mastering it change the game for someone? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I love the question. You're, you're specifically referring to the first ever podcast episode that I created. And to this day, it's one of my most popular podcast episodes. It's really, and as a fellow podcaster, it feels really good when people go back to the very beginning, see what you created, and then it resonates with them so strongly that they, many people reach out to me, social media, email, to, to tell me the power of that first lesson. And in that lesson, what we were talking about was the difference between information and intelligence. Too often people mistake the two as the same thing. And intelligence, for purposes that we're really trying to use, is, is the same thing as knowledge. In everyday terms, we're talking about knowledge when we talk about what 
I used to call intelligence. Gotcha. Information and knowledge are not the same thing. Information comes from everywhere. Information can be real, it can be false, it can be fake, it can be a mistake, it can be incomplete. Information is just data. It's just, you know, somebody, somebody puts a, a book in front of you and the cover is in Spanish, they're giving you information. You just can't make any sense of that information. Right. But when you process that information into knowledge, then it becomes valuable. And the way that you do that is there's, there's many different ways that you can do that. But, but the process that I like teaching is telling people to open their mind to as much information as they can take in. We live in a world that has become increasingly divided and subdivided. You can, it's not even enough to just say somebody's left or right leaning in politics anymore, right? They're far left leaning, they're far right leaning. We are subdividing every division that we can come up with. Right. And as a result, people end up kind of falling into one stream of information. Just like, uh, just like if, you are, uh, if you only speak one language in a foreign country, you fall into a stream where you're limited in information only to what's in your language. So if you only listen to, say, CNN, or you only listen to BBC, or you only follow Fox News, or you only read, you know, uh, the Washington Times, you're only, you're limiting the streams of information that you can have access to. When you open your mind, when you open yourself up to take in more information, and instead of listening, instead of following one or the other, you read all of the information. Now what you end up doing is allowing the information to cross-reference. So it's just like when you're, when you're trying to triangulate your location on a map. Right. You actually cast multiple azimuths to see where they intersect. That one single point where they intersect is a place that you have high confidence is your location. The exact same thing is true with information. When you listen to multiple sources of information where they all intersect, you have confidence. That is knowledge. Not information, but knowledge. And this is a skill that we learn at the agency. In the agency, we use different terminology. We say that we are corroborating information from all source intelligence, and we are using it to find veracity or proof of the intelligence itself. Those are, that's our fancy way of saying we take in multiple types of information to see where they intersect, and that gives us confidence that that piece is knowledge. And then once you have that knowledge, you act on that knowledge and you gain new experience. Every new experience then brings you more information. And that's that second cycle, that triangle that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You gain information, you synthesize it into knowledge, you apply your knowledge to gain experience, the experience brings in new information. And then before you know it, you're in a cycle yourself where you're increasing your information, increasing your experience and increasing your knowledge. Very, very powerful if you, can, if you can somehow consciously avoid the biases that you talk about. So Correct. What, so you talk, you talk about um, a, you, you, you talk about how the brain ends up processing the information in the wrong way because of certain biases. And so this, and you have to actively pursue some of the things you were just suggesting there, you have to actively pursue that so that uh, you process things correctly to truly get real knowledge and not, and not false knowledge. You want to talk about what those biases are? Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's countless biases that we have to worry about in terms of the way our mind works. 
Um, so there's two different ways to combat biases. And what we're talking about, for those of you who are not aware of what we mean when we say a bias, we're talking about cognitive biases. Mm-hmm. And there are other cognitive flaws. We have cognitive distortions. We have cognitive dissonance. These are all things that our brain does wrong, essentially. But what we're focusing on right now is this idea of a cognitive bias, which is a shortcut in your brain, a shortcut in the way that your brain processes information because of the way that you were conditioned as a child and as an adult through your education, through your personal experience. So just as a real quick example, uh, if you were bitten by a dog as a child, then you will forever see dogs as a threat. But that is a bias. That's a cognitive bias in your head that's based off of your own personal experience. If you've never been bitten by a dog and instead you were always, you always had a dog in the house, then you see dogs as a family friendly pet. That is again, just a bias. Neither one of those is fully accurate, but both of them are based in an experience that is valid. So the cognitive bias is a shortcut that your brain uses so that it doesn't constantly have to process information over and over again. Every time you see a dog, your brain doesn't want to go through the process of thinking through, okay, is it a big dog? Is it a little dog? Is that dog, does it have uh, sharp teeth? Is it barking at me? Is it old? Is it young? Your brain doesn't want to process that over and over again every time it sees a dog. So it creates a shortcut, just like an algorithm in any software program, just like a shortcut on your keyboard. And it says, dog, danger. Or it says, dog, friendly. It's, it's a flaw in the way that our brains work. And that's just the way it is. There's two ways to combat that. The first is the way that I talk about in that first podcast. It's based exclusively in experience. You force yourself to take in information from sources that you inherently don't trust. You have a cognitive bias that tells you, I don't trust far right news. I don't trust far left news. I don't trust anything my in-law says. I don't trust anything my, you know, my science teacher says, whatever it might be. You intentionally open yourself up to listen And then you let the information show you for itself if it's real or not. That type of combating a cognitive bias is, uh, it's almost like, it's almost like um, erosion. You can take a very sharp rock and you can run water over it long enough that the edge starts to disappear. It takes a long time. It's a very slow process, but it will eventually happen. I have had people who have come to me in my personal life and through Everyday Spy who have never taken a single day of training with me ever, but all they do is apply what they learn in the podcast and they will come to me and say that, that they're just floored with the, with the results that they used to never listen to XYZ news source. They would never open a book by a certain author. They refuse to read nonfiction books and now they try it and they realize that there's so much more information out there that they ever realized Mm. just because they're trying something new and there were, were, uh, filtering or were um, filing down that sharp edge that they're used to having. Mm. The second way to combat a cognitive bias is the training variety that I teach in OpThink. And there are many, there's uh, different trainings out there that I have that help you to identify through a series of exercises, your own personal cognitive biases, and then intentionally kind of break them down. And especially if you're the kind of person who suffers from uh, anxiety or if you're someone who has had a traumatic instance in your life, if you're someone who has been in, a, in an abusive relationship uh, as a child or as an adult, oftentimes these are biases that are so powerful 
that you can't move past them. The, the same concern that some people have about a dog, other people have about humans. You know, they say, oh, that person is a, is a six foot tall man. I don't trust him. That woman is a blonde woman. I don't trust her. That person came from Texas. I don't like them. Like there's incredible biases out there because of what's happened to us. And, and you have to learn how to combat those biases in a formulaic structured way so that you can, you know, you can maximize your, your opportunity to take advantage of factual information, of the assessment. If you remember that A in SADRAT, mm -hmm. assessment. Assessment is based in fact. You'll never get to the fact if you're, if you're constantly being railroaded by your own internal cognitive biases. That was a very long explanation, Lawrence. I hope I didn't lose Great. you. But that's, that's what we're talking about. So you mentioned, no, that's excellent. Thank you. Um, and you mentioned distortion, right? So there's something else you talk about. Um, and again, I, I'm halfway through all of your podcasts. Uh, <laughs> I'm, blow, I'm blowing through them. Um, they're fascinating. You talk about, when we, so distortions, right? You talk about the difference between perception and perspective. Yes. Can you talk about that for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, again, another great podcast episode that people um, oftentimes write me to tell me they enjoy is this, the conversation I have about perspective versus perception. We all have our own point of view. That point of view is our perception, our perception of reality. I was raised by my stepdad. My stepdad came into my life when I was five. My father died when I was very little. And I was raised by my stepdad. And my stepdad was a Vietnam vet. He was a tunnel rat, which was one of the worst jobs you can have in Vietnam. Like Bosch. <laughs> and he used to tell me as a kid, Andy, perception is reality. And I remember being six years old, eight years old, and disagreeing with my stepdad and being like that. There is no way that is true. If I am standing in the middle of a road and there is a car coming at me and I perceive that that car is going to hit me. It doesn't matter whether or not I perceive it will or perceive it won't, the car is gonna roll me over. Like if I'm standing in the middle of the road and my eyes are closed, I don't perceive a car at all. It's still gonna hit me, right? So don't tell me that perception is reality. There's all sorts of exceptions to this idea that perception is reality. But what I realized as an adult, I realized what my dad was trying to teach me is that we see our world through our own eyes. And what we see is what we determine to be our reality. So when we see that dog and we think it's dangerous, it is dangerous to us. That is our personal reality. The agency taught me that perception is not factual. Perception is something known as subjective or emotional. What you perceive to be real, someone else may not perceive to be real. So if your goal is to get into the other person's head, if your goal is to build a relationship by predicting and anticipating what someone else will do, your perception matters exactly nothing at all. You have to gain perspective. Perspective means stepping out of your own head, out of your own reality, and viewing the world based on observable, measurable data points and through the lens of your target or through the lens of someone else. Remember when we were talking about the, the 10 employees and the mm -hmm. boss, mm -hmm. nine of those employees could care less about the boss because nine of those employees are living through their own perception. Right. The one employee who can gain perspective 
and think about the life that their boss is leading by putting them into their boss's shoes or putting themselves in their boss's shoes, that perspective gives them an absolute advantage over the other nine people. Even if one of those people has more technical skills, one of those people has more seniority, one of those people is making more money, doesn't matter what tangible advantages other people have. If you can gain perspective and convert that perspective into actionable, useful knowledge or intelligence, you will have the ultimate advantage over all other people. I know you've seen it in sales. I'm sure you teach it. I have absolutely seen it in education. I've seen it in military training. I've seen it in military combat. When you are able to gain superior perspective, you have the high ground, you have the abundance of information, you have uh, primacy in, in everything once you gain that perspective and you leave behind your own limited perception. It's fascinating. And you go into a lot of other stuff and, and use some different examples in the podcast. So I implore everyone to listen to that. Um, okay. So understanding these pieces of the cognitive puzzle that we need to master and we need to be conscious of if we're going to build relationships, if we're going to um, be able to predict what someone else is going to do. Um, and if we're going to use the power, you know, have the power of secrets. Um, one of the other critical things that you talk about uh, that fits into that, uh, that fits into that puzzle is um, the four motivations, mm. understanding the four. And once I listened to that podcast, um, it, it really opened my eyes because you know, I'm thinking, okay, I know what the four, I know Maslow's hierarchy of need, <laughs> you know, what's he talking about? You know, what's this going to be all about? But you actually brought up some other, some other pieces that are really, really um, interesting. So tell us about the four motivations that we must understand if we're to have power over relationships. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there are four motivations that CIA teaches us are common to all people. And again, if, if it hasn't been clear yet, one of the things that's so powerful about CIA is that the training there is unbiased. The training is not relevant only to Americans. It's not relevant only to Europeans. It is universal training. The, the things that the concepts that we touch upon have to be applicable to everyone, irregardless of uh, age, race, creed, relationship, uh, uh, intelligence, religion, whatever. So these four motivations and uh, these four motivations are four motivations common to all human beings and they go by an acronym known as RICE, R-I-C-E. And the first motivation is known as reward. We all know what a reward is and how it motivates us, whether we're being rewarded with a free cruise and that makes us sign ourselves up and our in-laws up and our wife up to win some drawing, whether being motivated by a promotion or a raise or whether we're the fifth caller in on a radio show because we want you know, a $25 gift card. We all know what it's like to be motivated to take action based on a reward. It's a good motivation, but it's not the strongest motivation because there's plenty of people who never call that radio station because they don't want that reward or they don't think the reward is enough. $25 gift certificate to stand on a, to wait on a telephone line doesn't sound like fun to a lot of people. Right. The second motivation, I, stands for ideology. Ideology, unlike reward, is the strongest motivation out there. People will do incredible things if they believe it is in line with their ideology. This is where you find all the people who believe in their faith, 
whatever their religious identity or faith might be. People who identify themselves by their ethnic uh, history, by their skin color or their uh, ethnic identity, their race, their passport, national ID, whatever it might be. Ideology is super powerful. And if you can align an action and act with someone's ideology, it's almost guaranteed that they will take action on, on what you want them to take action on. The C stands for coercion. Coercion is a fancy word that stands for shame or guilt or fear. So that's where you read about all the movies that talk about blackmail and all the movies that talk about hostage taking. These are all people trying to accomplish something using the motivation of coercion, trying to force someone to take a certain action using fear, shame, guilt, uh, threat, harm, etc. Coercion is a very powerful motivation. It's arguably more powerful than reward. Because if you've got a gun to your head, you're going to do pretty much anything it takes to not have a gun pointed at your head anymore. But the difference is that you only get to use coercion once. Once you have been caught being coercive, you violate trust for the rest of your known existence with that person who caught you. So it's an extremely dangerous tool to try to use, whether it's with your kids or with your spouse or with anybody. If you're lying or conniving or tricking or, or shaming or guilting, once you're caught, it's game over for you. So I never recommend see CIA tries to never use this, the coercive motivation because you end up having what we had with waterboarding with any of our history and torture. You cannot rely on the information because we never know why it's being shared. So we covered reward is the R, ideology is the I, C is coercion, and the strongest of all of those is the I in ideology. The final, the final motivation is known as ego, E. So R-I-C-E, reward, ideology, coercion, and ego. Ego is individual to each person. You must gain perspective in order to understand someone else's ego. Now, we often mistake ego as something that means that person is egotistical. They care about themselves. They're all about, they're narcissistic. They think they're great. That's kind of like the poor man's definition of ego. The, the rich man's definition of ego, the true definition of ego is that it is what matters to us as individuals. Some people like being quiet and shy. Some people like being braggadocious. Some people like being intelligent uh, and reserved. Some people like being giving and generous. All of those are different forms of ego. So if you can align, if you can identify someone's ego as a motivator, and then you, can, you have an action you want them to take, if you can align that action with their ego, they're gonna take action on it. A great example is my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law loves to give. She's one of the most generous people I've ever met. It doesn't make us get along, but she loves to give. So anytime she gets like a flyer in the mail that says, hey, these abandoned circus elephants need someone to love them and $5 a day for the next month will show them how much you love them. Man, they're hitting her right where her ego meets an action and boom, they've got a new donor. That's the power of ego. That same, that same flyer would never affect me because I'm not much of a giver. So it's not, it's not the same thing. But if I were to get a flyer that said something about, you know, how to take care of my children or how to be a better spouse or how to be a, a better marketer, a better business owner, a better podcaster, I'm going to give that, that flyer a second look because it hits me where my ego matches my intentions. 
So interesting. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. I have, so I'm going to have one more question for you. Um, and this one is kind of what I intimated uh, at the beginning of our conversation where you talk about the dumbest person in the room <laughs> actually is not what you think. Being the dumbest person in the room is probably the smartest thing you can do. Can you talk to us about why that whole concept is so powerful? Absolutely. We, we are conditioned socially to think that we have to be the center of attention. Yep. Uh, we have to be popular. We have to be important. We have to be powerful. These are all things that we, we align, we identify in ourselves as some kind of gap, something missing, something we have to pursue. And that's why we pursue education. We pursue stressful jobs. We pursue uh, you know, high, high risk adventure or whatever to try to gain some piece of popularity, some piece of, of celebrity uh, feeling, right? You've got all these influencers out there taking pictures of themselves and what they're eating, trying to be important. Yes. That is, a, it's, it's a flaw. It's a cognitive flaw that we have because of how we've been conditioned. In fact, when you are that person, when you're, when you're putting all your effort into a self aggrandizement to try to look and feel special or be special, you're actually degrading the natural trust that you could be earning from other people in a relationship. And this is, this goes back to the heart of why we talked about human intelligence. Everything centers around a meaningful relationship. When was the last time you ever met someone who was self-absorbed and popular and, uh, and narcissistic and you felt like you could trust them? It never happens. When was the last time you met a life of the party and felt like that's the kind of person I really want to tell my dark secrets to? Right. It never happens. It never happens. And we are trained that way in the CIA to recognize that that is a cognitive flaw. It's important that we get that training because oftentimes we are recruited out of places where we are the best, where we are the sharpest, where we're the most successful, where we are the life of the party. We have to have these certain uh, personality traits so that when we are put out there in the world by ourselves on long-term deployments, we can sustain. So they have to train that narcissism, that ego out of us. And they do it by teaching us this concept of being the dumbest person in the room. The person who sits there in a party quietly Nobody sees that person as a threat. Nobody sees that person as a, as, as a hostile or as an annoyance or as an inconvenience. Right. Instead, that person almost disappears. Their silence becomes a sort of anonymity that gives them an incredible advantage because they can walk between any conversation. They can politely interrupt at any time. And when they interrupt, are they interrupting to tell a one-up story? Oh, good story. Let me one-up you with something I did that was even cooler. No, they interrupt to ask a follow-up question about that person's story. Oh, you said that you were in Nepal. Can you tell me, was it, what was it like up there? Was it hard to breathe? And all of a sudden, they're, they're building that relationship that you and I talked about because the person who's telling the story wants that dumbest person in the room to be around them all the time because it makes them feel better. That person who is who I am calling the dumbest person in the room isn't dumb at all. What that person is doing is essentially playing dumb. They are putting themselves into an information receiving mode instead of an information transmission mode. Instead of talking about themselves, they're asking about everybody else. 
they're letting information come in, just like we talked about with information, knowledge, and experience. They're letting all these different pieces of information come in. They find where it all intersects. And when they walk out of the room, arguably they walk out of the room smarter than anybody else is going to walk out of that room because they learned more from having an open mind. They gained more information. They built stronger relationships just because they were willing to put their own self needs, their own personal uh, ego aside for one day or for one night or for one hour so that they would accept and, and wear that mantle of being the dumbest person in the room. Incredible. Um, absolutely. Um, just this is why I was saying um, earlier, I think before we came on air, how fascinated I was with finding you. I was lucky enough to stumble upon your information and uh, because a lot of what you're talking about is a, is a really unique look at the human mind and how to, uh, how to be proactive and how to use uh, the, the, the laws of nature, the laws of psychology uh, in a way that really none of us think about because we're all operating on instinct and you're you know, through your training, obviously, you're, you're breaking things down. And a lot of what you talk about is, you know, counterintuitive to us. And it's just, it's just great stuff. So um, let me know. interrupt you. There's one more thing I want to I share with you, Lawrence, right? Yeah. And this may or may not surprise you because I know you, you have your own background in sales. But there's a gift that I want to give you and I want to give anybody who's still listening. Okay. Because we've been talking now for just about 90 minutes, maybe 80-ish minutes, not counting what we talked about before we hit record. Mm -hmm. Statistically speaking, statistically speaking, we lost about half of the audience at the 20-minute mark. Okay. We lost probably another half of that remaining half at about the 40-minute mark. We are really only carrying now about 20% of the same group that started with us. So if you're hearing me talk right now, if you're still watching this YouTube video, if you're still listening to the podcast, you have basically self-identified yourself as someone who is interested in this topic. The people who weren't interested have already left. This is something we call filtering at CIA. It's the process that we use to execute a surveillance detection route, an SDR. When you do an SDR to see if you're being followed, you go through a very specific path for a certain period of time intentionally so that all the people who are behind you but not following you, they all disappear. And then 90 minutes later, the only people who are still behind you are the people who are following you. It's a filtering process. It's very similar to a sales funnel. So what we have just done with this 80 minute podcast is filtered out all the people who aren't interested in learning how to use espionage to master their everyday life. They got bored with one of my stories. They didn't like hearing about the skill, whatever it might be. For the people who are left, and if you haven't done it yourself yet, Lawrence, there is a, uh, a spy game, a spy training simulation that I have on Everyday Spy. Okay. It's, it's uh, slightly hidden, but it's completely free. And I like to use it as a way of saying thank you to people who are interested in this topic. So if you go to everydayspy.com and you scroll down just a little bit, you'll see a button for a free spy training game. That game is called Operation Real Time. Okay. You and I spoke earlier about, about uh, simulation training, fully immersive 
experiential-based training. Operation Real-Time is a, is a fully immersive training scenario that I built to model the same kind of training scenarios we have at CIA to give people a chance to basically test their own spy skills, their inherent spy skills. Many of those that we talked about today, things like rice, things like perspective versus perception, things like uh, understanding being the dumbest person in the room and, and how to trust the source and build a relationship. So if you go to everydayspy.com forward slash operations, operations with an S, operations, everydayspy.com forward slash operations, you can absolutely have your, your full run at a fully immersive spy simulation. It's okay. completely free, it's my pleasure to share it. It's something that I put out there specifically so that when I have chances like this, where we have filtered out people, mm -hmm. it's a chance for me to really give back to the people who are still listening. And I've, I'm very proud of it. There's been lots of great feedback from it. If you haven't done it yet, Lawrence, I hope that you will. Yep. It'll take maybe an hour of your time, but it'll test to see, you know, how, how much of a spy do you have already in you? I'm gonna do it with my wife, actually. That's right. <laughs> awesome. Um, Andrew, man, it's been a pleasure. Um, so you've already given the listeners, um, a gift and, and where to find you. Is there anywhere else you would like them to go? You'll find If you're interested in what we're talking about, you'll find me at everydayspy.com. Sign up for the newsletter at everydayspy.com. Mm -hmm. It's clear as day. I'll send you spy skills multiple times a week. Everything I'm thinking about working on learning and building is all going out there. Uh, along with every piece of training material I've put out there. The podcast, Everyday Espionage Podcast, is another great place uh, to find more information, more of what we're doing. And if you want to get a little bit more of an intimate look into my life, you can go to the Everyday Spy YouTube channel, where I share more about how I'm using my own techniques in my everyday life. It's a little less learning, a little bit more blog with some lessons mixed in, but all three of those channels are just you know wide open, absolutely free. I just want to give people the knowledge that I have so that they can use it to gain whatever advantage they're trying to gain. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Andrew, I hope you'll come back on the show. This, I mean, we've only scratched the surface, um, <laughs> but it was, it, it was absolutely brilliant. Um, thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Lawrence, and hit me up anytime and I'd gladly come back. Great. Great. Thank you. Take care, sir.